following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Let me just give us our bearings again in the Gospel of John. So, we're, we're tracking through this Gospel this year. John has 21 chapters, okay, 21 chapters in the book. Seven of those chapters all happen within 24 hours. Okay, so just chronologically, that's a good way of thinking about John. So chapters 13 through 19 all happen in the last 24 hours before Jesus' death on the cross. Which is why John is sometimes called a passion narrative with an extended introduction. A lot of John is consumed with this last 24 hours of Jesus' life, particularly his suffering leading to his, his death. So big chunk of the book is those final 24 hours, and that's where we are at the moment. We're in John 17. We've just looked at this great big conversation that Jesus has with his disciples on the night before he dies, and he finishes that conversation then at the end of chapter 16, and after talking to his disciples, he prays. And he prays with an earshot of his disciples so that they can hear him praying, and he's praying for them, and he's praying for himself, And he's praying for us. He's literally praying for us because he says, I pray for all those who will believe in me because of the disciples' ministry. And as the gospel spreads around the world through time and space, Jesus prays for us as his followers. And that's the part of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, I'm calling it the Lord's Prayer even though this is not the actual Lord's Prayer that Jesus gave us. This is like his own Lord's Prayer that he prays. Uh, This is the part of that prayer that most concerns us and is most directly about us. And it's also probably the most well-known part of this prayer of Jesus in John 17. So it's a shorter section than last week. John 17, verse 20, down to verse 26. Jesus says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them glory, the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me, And have loved them even as you loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. And to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them. And will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them. And I myself may be in them. Let's pray. Jesus, help us to hear these words as spoken to us today. May these not be just words on a page. May these not be just ideas in our head. May these be life-changing truths that transform us individually and as a community, that we may be one, just as you and the Father are one. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. In the lead-up to the recent election... Uh, I have a friend on Facebook who posted a political comment, a comment in which he said, I'm not going to be voting for this party. He named the party. He didn't say who he would be voting for, but he just said, I am 
definitely not voting for this party for these reasons. And he gave several reasons. He's, he's a fairly well-known Christian leader, and he just came out with this very, very blatant political comment. And needless to say, comments like that, posts like that get made, and comments start swirling around. Some comments came back positive. Some comments came back negative. And there was one guy in particular who came back with a stinging rebuke to this guy and said he just basically couldn't believe how uninformed this guy was, how irresponsible he was. And he said, on one hand, he really likes the idea of Christians and Christian leaders being open about their political views in the public sphere. But on the other hand, he said he was absolutely aghast that this guy would share these particular views. It sounded kind of like the guy who was commenting was basically saying, like, I'm happy for you to share your views as long as they're the same views as mine. It was sort of the flavor of his comments. So these comments went back and forth between one guy and another guy several times. And the sad thing was, by about the third comment, it had become personal. And the guy who was commenting started calling into question the guy's character, basically calling him uneducated and uninformed and irresponsible and these sorts of... It just turned really nasty. And it's, an, it's indicative to me of the way in which I think as Christians... We often don't handle our disagreements and disputes very well. I'm sure this applies to everyone, but maybe particularly to Christians. We just seem to have a problem dealing with differences in a healthy kind of way. I mean, that Facebook conversation was played out before all their Facebook friends, who knows how many of them non-Christians. And you just wonder, what are people thinking of this? What sort of sign of Christian unity is this? No problem with having disagreements, no problem with differences, but we don't seem to be able to handle them a lot of the time in ways that really honor God and ways that are healthy. And you see that in interpersonal conversations. Uh, you see it in the way that Christians often have a, and we all do, a fight or flight mechanism that we either get aggressive and we get hostile when we run into conflict with other people, or we go the other way and we become isolated and we withdraw from people, we freeze them out, and we just become bitter and resentful, and we don't want to deal with our stuff with, with the person concerned. Or, or as Kiwis, we choose the wonderful third road of passive-aggressive behavior. That's, that's, our, that's our trademark, that's our signature move in New Zealand, passive-aggressive behavior. So we just, on the surface of it, it's all great, We're all because we don't want to rock the boat, but we'll find other ways to get vengeance, we'll find other ways to badmouth people, we'll find other ways to punish them and let them know how unhappy we are, but we always do it covertly, around the side, rather than dealing with things directly. You, you see this at a church level, sadly, sometimes churches that develop splinter groups and factions and gossip circles and groups of people that don't like each other, and then that escalates to church splits over all kinds of things, sometimes trivial things, sometimes huge things, and then you end up with whole sections of the Christian church around the world divided from one another. That's the state of play today, that the body of Christ is largely fragmented around the world and is splintered and splintered and splintered again, particularly over the last 500 years, and is a shadow of its once unified self. You see it with Christians who have entrenched theological views, dogmatic theological views on things that really don't matter, and they use the internet to bang everyone else over the head with and tell them why they're wrong and launch this venom upon other people, and it just gets ugly, and the world must watch with some kind of disbelief that we claim to be Christians who follow Jesus who prayed this prayer, that his followers would be one, and yet we act in ways that really deny the gospel of its power 
by continuing to divide and fracture among ourselves. And that kind of disunity is the opposite of what Jesus prayed. He prays that we would be one. He prays that we would be brought to complete unity. And when you look at the history of the church over 2,000 years, it almost seems naive to pray this. It almost seems foolish to pray that the followers of Jesus would be one because the church is so fragmented and it is so splintered. But I think that's why this is a prayer and not a commandment. I mean, clearly we are commanded to pursue unity. But when Jesus gives his strongest words about unity, you notice it's in the form of a prayer. That I think Jesus knew this is hard, too hard for us. I think he knew this is beyond us to really achieve the kind of oneness, the kind of unity that he's talking about. So he prays that the Father would make us one. He prays that God and his power would come and bring unity in his church. This is the work of God to do, but we've got to submit to it. And we've got to be part of the answer to Jesus' prayer. So what Jesus does in these verses as he prays for unity is he doesn't really focus so much on the how of unity. He doesn't talk a lot about the mechanics and how we're going to be united with each other. He really addresses the why question. Why is this important? Why should we be united with each other? Because unity as a a virtue, it's not just a good idea. It's not just something we do for the sake of it. Christian unity is part of a much bigger story. It's part of a much greater narrative, and it sits inside a bigger framework. And if we can understand the bigger story of which unity is a part, we're going to be more compelled, I think, to practice unity in our relationships with each other. So I want to look at this big story that Jesus paints in just a few succinct verses as to why unity is important and the story that it sits within. The unity of Christians is not something that starts with us. It's not something that starts with us. It starts with God. And the foundation of our unity with one another as Christians is based on the unity that God has within his own being. Look down in verse uh, 21. Jesus says that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. I often think sometimes in Scripture that the most important words are the really little words. And I think that's true here. I think the most important words here are the words just as. I pray that they may be one just as you are in me and I am in you. Our unity as a church, as believers, is supposed to be a reflection of, a, a type of the unity that exists within God's own being, between the Father and the Son. And we could add in the, the Holy Spirit. He's not mentioned here, but safe to say, part of the Trinity. There is this unity within God's own being, this love that's flowing between Father and Son and Spirit, and that is the foundation of all our expressions of unity. And the unity within the being of God shows us what real unity looks like so that we have a model to base our own unity on. The unity within God includes both oneness and otherness. There is a oneness and an otherness to God. There there is a oneness where the members of the Trinity are moving toward each other in love, always looking out to the interests of the other, always uplifting each other, always supporting each other, always pointing away from themselves, in a sense, towards the other, the Father, the Son, the Spirit. You see this in the Gospel of John time and time again, that the Father glorifies the Son 
And the Son glorifies the Father. And the Spirit glorifies the Son and the Father. And they're all orientated away from themselves. And they're all seeking to, to love the other and to shed light on the other and to magnify the other and to lay themselves down for the other and to move towards each other with love and with kindness and with goodness and with affection and with delight. That's the kind of oneness that the Trinity has. Always moving in concert with one another. When one acts, they all act. When one speaks, they all speak. There is a togetherness within the being of God that forms a deep oneness that should be a model for our unity. And then within the being of God, there is also this otherness whereby the members of the Trinity are other than each other. And they celebrate that. They're not all identical. There is Father, there is Son, there is Spirit. And each of them have a distinct identity. Each of them have a persona of their own. They are persons. Although they're within the one being of God, they are persons. They act in certain ways. They have a certain role in the biblical story. They have a certain role in the plan of God. And there is a distinctiveness, even within their oneness. And those, those differences between Father, Son, and Spirit, they're not something that drives the Trinity apart. They're not something that pulls the members of the Trinity apart. They are a cause for celebration. They are something to be cherished. They are something to, to be held up as a virtue that they can cherish the otherness of one another and not just their oneness. So these two things play off against each other. There is a oneness and there is an otherness, and that comes together into a beautiful unity in diversity, which forms the very heart of the Trinity. That's who the Trinity is, a unity, one, per, one, one being, but in a diversity. Three persons who celebrate their otherness, even as, though, even as they are one. So this unity within the being of God gives us the foundation, it gives us the model of what our unity is supposed to look like. This is part of what it means for us to be in the image of God, that we are to be in our relationships with each other, we are to be a reflection of the oneness and otherness within God's own being. We are to image God and be a living microcosm of, of who he is. And here's the way that Jesus puts it. This is his most succinct and direct statement on Christian unity. In verse 23, he says, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Complete unity. Another translation of that phrase is that they may be perfected as one brought to complete perfection or unity or maturity as one. It's, it's a big prayer. That's, that's a huge thing to pray for, isn't it? It's an incredibly ambitious prayer. You kind of wish maybe Jesus had set his sights just a little bit lower with this. He could have said possibly that they may be able to get along with each other most of the time. Some, you know, something that just seems to bring it into the ballpark of what is actually attainable, rather than this lofty goal that they may be brought to complete unity. Uh, in view of church history, that just seems like a crazy thing to pray. But Jesus knew what he was saying. He knew what he was praying. That's, that's his goal. That's his heart. That's what he's asking the Father for. And it's easy, I know it's easy, to be discouraged about so much disunity within the body of Christ. We see it all over the place. That, that tends to be what we're, we're drawn to. That tends to get the headlines. But sometimes focusing on the negative displays of, of disunity can blind us to the ways in which this prayer is being answered. And I think there are ways today in which God is at work answering 
this prayer of Jesus. I don't think he's turning a deaf ear to it. I think God is at work sometimes really little ways, sometimes huge ways of answering this prayer and bringing unity among his people, bringing unity among followers of Christ. In 1999, an editorial appeared in the Wall Street Journal. And the title of the editorial was By Grace Alone. It's the kind of title you'd expect to see in Christianity today, not the Wall Street Journal. By Grace Alone. And the editorial was reflecting on a declaration that had just been signed a couple of months earlier between the Roman Catholic Church and the Lutheran Church, which is a major Protestant denomination. And this declaration was a theological one, specifically over the doctrine of justification, which, if you know anything about the division between Catholic and Protestant, the doctrine of justification is at the heart of that. And the editorial is reflecting on this declaration that had been agreed upon. I want to read you a few extracts from this editorial because it words it so well. It starts like this. Exactly 482 years after Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, leaders of the Lutheran and Roman Catholic churches met in Augsburg on Sunday to settle a dispute that formed the core of their schism and that led to the Protestant Reformation and the Thirty Years' War. And that issue was justification. And later on, the editorial says this, The joint declaration issued by the two churches was the product of 30 years of work at doctrinal reconciliation. It effectively concedes the theological debate to Luther. I'm not sure all the Catholics would agree with that. But. Uh, by grace, this is an excerpt from the declaration now. By grace alone, in faith in Christ's saving work, and not because of any merit on our part, we are accepted by God and receive the Holy Spirit. But it finds Catholics have a point too, saying that the Holy Spirit renews our hearts while equipping and calling us to do good works. And here's how the uh, editorial ends. The Lutheran-Catholic joint declaration hardly paves the way for an immediate reunification of the churches. The world's nearly 1 billion Catholics and 82 million Lutherans still disagree over issues such as the papacy and the nature of the Eucharist. But the joint declaration, nevertheless, may be one of the most important ecumenical moments of our century. When two churches say they can finally see eye to eye on a dispute that's shaped the history of Europe for nearly half the millennium, it's a big deal. And in an age when some churches feel compelled to market themselves with trendy irrelevancies, it's nice to see that others still care about the central tenet of Christian teaching, that sinners can be saved. That's in the Wall Street Journal. Isn't that crazy? And, and there, I think, is an historic demonstration of Christian unity. Now, you don't want to oversell that. There are many differences and disagreements still between Catholics and Protestants, uh, some of them very important differences and disagreements. That's, that's fine. But that was a milestone. And even the spirit behind that process of working towards reconciliation, giving the time to it, is pretty impressive stuff. I think we need to reflect on that as Protestants and ask ourselves, have we been guilty maybe of treating our Catholic brothers and sisters in ways that are pretty antagonistic at times? Treating them as, as second-class Christians or sometimes even as not Christians at all. You know, people sort of say, I used to be a Catholic and now I'm a Christian. As if those are mutually independent categories. There are many, many faithful Christian brothers and sisters within Catholic churches. And this unity is something that we should cherish. I think a lot of Protestants, and maybe Catholics too, are fighting debates and battles that are outdated by about a century. And don't take account of the landscape that we've now got in front of us, where there's been a lot of conciliatory talk. There's been a lot of dialogue, 
where some of these old wounds and divisions have been healed. And there's been a tremendous amount of coming together. A lot of Christians aren't even aware of that. And we still sort of sit in our camp over here and we just assume, you know, they're the enemy, the Catholics over there. They're kind of the bad guys. And we treat them as such. I think we need to check ourselves on that. I think we need to exercise more grace. And even if we do believe that they're somehow out there or separated in some way, does that mean we're antagonistic? Does that mean we're hostile? Does that mean we're aggressive to them? We need to be people of grace. Deal with these differences in a loving way, in a spirit of dialogue, in a spirit of reconciliation. We are all part of Christ's church. We've got to strive for oneness. We've got to strive for unity. I saw another display of unity earlier this year in a totally different way. Uh, When our group was in Israel recently, we worshipped at a Baptist church up in the north of Israel called Turon Baptist Church. And that church is largely made up of Palestinian Christians, and they worship in Arabic, which was an interesting experience, singing some songs that were familiar to us, but trying to sing them in Arabic. That was a challenge. They had some mercy on us, and they put some English words in there from time to time so that we could, we could sing along. But that church is part of a whole collection of churches uh, around the Nazareth area, around the Galilee, and they're churches of all, all different kinds. And apparently, I'm, I'm told that from time to time, The Turon Baptist Church of Palestinian Christians will even meet together and worship with a congregation of Messianic Jews, which is a huge deal. That's a big deal. You know, when you consider the recent hostilities in Gaza, when you consider the long-standing hostilities and violence between Israelis and Palestinians, that you would have a reconciled community of Jews and Arabs worshiping the same Lord Jesus Christ, Side by side. I think that must be one of the most wonderful testimonies to Christian unity on the planet today. That is exactly what Jesus is praying for. And it's sad, honestly, that Christians feel the need to take sides in these things. We almost feel compelled to pick a side. Which side are you on? Like it's just black and white, like there's good guys and bad guys. The heart of Jesus is for reconciliation. The heart of Jesus is for unity. And when he looks at that congregation, who despite all their differences, not least of which would be the language barrier of worshipping in Hebrew and in Arabic, but they make it work and they come together because at the foot of the cross they are united in Christ. And that doesn't mean, I'm sure, that they just set aside all their differences and the things that are important that they disagree on. It's not that those things stop mattering. It's that there's something more important than the things that divide us which is the cross of Christ that unites us. That's the heart of unity. It's not that our differences disappear. It's not that you suddenly give up on things that are important to you. It's not that you sell out. It's that our differences with one another and the differences within the body of Christ as a whole are ultimately transcended by the cross, or they should be. They are ultimately, our differences are ultimately relativized by the cross of Christ, which is the great unifying principle of the church. And where we allow our differences to get in the way of our relationships and our unity in, the cross, in Christ, what we are doing is bringing down the cross. And we're saying that's not as important as our differences. The reconciled work of Jesus is not as important as what divides us right here. We've got to elevate the cross and allow ourselves to come around the cross in unity. It's not that we lose our distinctiveness. We can have otherness. We can have different. We can have disagreement and robust debate. That all good things but we must be unified by the cross of Christ. I know that a lot of this is big stuff out there, international stuff, and it's easy to feel like, well, I don't have any part in that. You know, the battle of unity is not really my battle to fight, but this comes right down to a personal level. 
This comes right down to ground level for us because as Christians, we are called to be part of the answer to Jesus' prayer, to work towards this and to pray for this and to practice it in our own lives. And we've got to consider the unity of the Trinity, the oneness and the otherness of God, and ask, how can I walk that out in my relationships with one another? How can we practice oneness with each other in this church? I think one of the ways is that it should cause us to rethink the approach that we have to conflict, the approach that we have when our relationships come under strain, when you have disagreements and disputes with another person in the church or another Christian. Our commitment to oneness should cause us to think carefully about how we engage with that because it it seems to me that Christians love the idea of unity. We love the concept of unity. We love the vision of unity right up to the point we actually have conflict with one another. And then it all goes out the window. And then some, it's just too hard at that point or we feel aggrieved and we feel hurt and we feel like there's been injustice. And at that stage, we just act in our interests and we stand on our rights and we demand our entitlements. And all of our great lofty talk about unity goes out the window. But this must be earthed in the actual situations of conflict that you're experiencing now. This has to be walked out in in real situations and real conflicts and disputes that we are having with one another. This commitment to unity, it should make us think about how we engage with that. It should make us people who are committed to the practice of peacemaking, to the practice of reconciliation, that we're committed to doing everything we can when we're getting into a situation of disagreement or dispute with another person. We're going to do everything we can, as far as it depends on us, to be people of peace, to be people who deal with our disagreements up front with one another. Not go talking to three other people first. Not go sharing it with a whole lot of other people and dancing around it and then just pretending like everything's okay with the person. But being up front and naming the issues, putting them on the table in a spirit of love, not to win an argument, not to score points, not to show that you are right, but to preserve unity and to try and protect the relationship. It means being honest with the other person when you've got a disagreement with them, seeking to be reconciled. Not always possible, I know. It takes two people to be reconciled, but it only takes one person to forgive. And that's a practice we need to learn as well, the art of forgiveness. That when we are hurt and we are wounded, we need to be people committed to forgiving, not holding grudges, not harboring resentment, not seething with bitterness, but forgiving. And then keep on forgiving. Because forgiveness, I think, is a lifetime process. As long as the bitterness is there, the process of forgiveness has not finished. As long as the negative emotions are still there and your stomach still churns when you think about that person and what they've done to you, forgiveness has not yet finished its work. Forgiveness is something you do every day. Starts with a declaration and a commitment to forgive, but every day you keep on forgiving. You lay down your right to get even. You lay down your right to seek justice yourself. You leave justice with God, you leave justice at the cross, and you enter into a spirit of love and forgiveness towards the other person. Doesn't mean you overlook what they've done. Doesn't mean you minimize that. Part of forgiveness is naming exactly what's been done and naming the hurt. But we do that so we can forgive the hurt. Because otherwise it is going to eat you up. Otherwise you are going to be the one ultimately who's imprisoned by your own bitterness and by your own resentment. Practices of forgiveness, practices of peacemaking, practices of reconciliation, practices of confession, that we'd have the courage to be honest with each other when we've got things that are offensive about us that we've done, that in conversation we'd be able to name those with each other and say, here's where I think I've messed up, and you tell me if there's something else. And then owning that 
and seeking forgiveness and being prepared to extend forgiveness to others as well. This stuff is really, really hard. It's a great idea. It's great theory. Yes, yes, yes. So biblical, but really, really hard. In the moment, right? You know this. When you actually get into the gritty realities of conflict, especially conflict between Christians, it just gets ugly. And I want to encourage us to be a church where we are committed to being peacemakers, no matter what the cost, to pursuing reconciliation for the sake of the unity of the church. And then our unity also, as well as oneness with each other, it also requires this otherness where we can celebrate our differences and we can enjoy the otherness of other people. There's a guy called Donald McGravin who, in the middle of the 20th century, he, he's sort of seen as the founder of the church growth movement, if you like. And uh, he came up with this concept called the homogenous unit principle. And his basic idea, and this is what he said to church planters, and this was a model used by many, many church planters, still is in some ways, some circles, uh, that churches are going to work better and people are going to be more attracted to them if they are made up of similar types of people. So sociologically, groups are going to be more cohesive if they're formed around people that share commonalities and similarities. And this has become a model for church planting, that you try to attract one type of person, that you try to attract one culture, you try to attract one social class, you try to attract one generation, you try to attract one type of people because then they're just going to get on better and they're going to find more cohesion with one another. And to be honest, that might be quite pragmatic. That might be part of the recipe to grow a big church. But I honestly believe it's a betrayal of the gospel because it is the antithesis of what Jesus prays here, that we would be one. It's the antithesis of what Paul says in Galatians 3.28, that there is no Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, all are one in Christ Jesus. Our society is fragmented, but that's not to be the church. We are a new humanity. We are a reconciled community by the cross of Christ. And as idealistic as it may be, as unpragmatic as it may be at times, we are to be a community that celebrate differences and can sit together and worship together and take communion together across racial lines, across social lines, across linguistic lines, across socioeconomic lines. The church should be a unified community that shows something different to the world than what it can find out there with isolation and fragmentation. Otherwise, we are just giving in and selling out, I think. Christ calls us to be one, and that means being prepared to see our differences as something positive. Again, I know this is not easy because there's people in the church now that really annoy you. There's people that really just, you know, it's just there's not, you don't have the chemistry with them and maybe it's a personality thing and maybe they've done something, but there's people. You can think of there's probably someone sitting in this, it might be me. <laughs> there's someone really annoys. I mean, it's not just differences. The thing with differences is we don't like them and we don't really want to be around that person that's different to us and we will just drift away from them. I think even at a church like ours, which is diverse in some ways, we can still practice the homogenous unit principle by drifting into ghettos, drifting into silos and just always being with people like us. Just being with people, think the same, talk the same, whatever, you know, same, just same kind of people. We've got to be prepared to look outside of our little social world, look outside of our little bubble even within this church, and reach out to others, invite people into our life groups that are not maybe like us, have conversations over morning tea with people outside our own existing little social circle, 
the people that do annoy you and the ones you really struggle with, being loving towards them, engaging in conversation, not avoiding them, not taking the other way around the auditorium so you don't have to sit with them, but being loving towards them, genuinely taking an interest in them, genuinely, but it doesn't mean you have to be best friends, but it does mean that you practice the heart of the gospel, which is unity. Not trying to make the conversation with them as short as it can possibly be, but actually seeing God has put that annoying person in this church with me to help me become more like Jesus. To help me become more conformed to the image of God. And yes, it's a great test of my character, but I accept it as that. And I'm going to do what I can to love that person. This is the ground level reality of unity. It's not easy. But we've got to work against the homogenous unit principle, I think. And see diversity as something to celebrate and to move in love towards people that might frustrate us or annoy us or irritate us in some way. There's one final dimension of unity I want to mention here, and it's so important. And this is the goal of our unity, the ultimate goal, which may be a little bit surprising. In verse 23, Jesus says, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you love me. You know, the ultimate goal of our unity is the world, is that the world may believe. Ultimately, our unity with one another, it's not for our sake. It's for the sake of the world, that they might see the gospel lived out among us. Of course, it's good for us, and in a sense, it is for our sake. But ultimately, Jesus is clear that the world may know. Our unity is for the benefit of the world so that they see us and in seeing our relationships with one another, they see a little bit of God. They see something of who God is, the oneness, the otherness of God, the love, and they're drawn to God through that. This is part of our witness to the world. It's not just that the church has a witness. It's the church is a witness. The church and its very life together is a mission, is a witness to the world, and we're showing the world through our unity with one another what God is like. So keep that in mind when you hit situations of conflict with others. Keep that in mind when you're thinking about that annoying person, that ultimately the call on your life to take steps towards unity with them, it's bigger than just you and them. It's a lot more at stake here. It's the mission of our church, the witness of our church in our world and in our community is at stake. Because when non-Christians see this stuff, good or bad, they take notice. They watch, and it forms an impression of who we are, and it forms an impression of who God is. So let's practice unity for the sake of the world. We live in a world that is so divided, and it is so easy for us just to exist in our little bubbles and to be with people who, who are just like us. As a church, we need to be committed to practicing the prayer of Jesus. This is a prayer that Jesus is still praying for us. It's a prayer that God is still answering. It's a prayer that we are still called to take steps toward. I want to encourage you to think of specific situations. I know it's easy for this to be a big, broad message that never really gets anchored in your I ask you to think about specific people now, specific situations you're aware of where some of this connects and, and drives home for you, people that you find it hard to deal with, people that you're in conflict with, Situations of conflict that you're aware of. People who are different to you in our congregation. Other Christians outside of our church that you may have some issue with. Christians and churches that you may be tempted to be critical of and throw rocks at without acknowledging we're actually all sitting around the same table. 
I want to encourage you to think about those situations and ask yourself now, in God's grace and by His strength, what would He have you do? What, would he have, what is one step that you can take towards being part of the answer to this prayer? Is it making a phone call to someone, having a coffee with someone, getting in touch with someone that you've, your relationship with them has come under some strain? Is it reaching out to someone that's just different to you and unlike you and just taking some initiative to befriend someone even in this church who just doesn't share a lot in common with you? And that's part of the beauty of the unity of the church. Is it maybe in the ways that you talk about or approach Christians and churches that are not like us, that have some differences with us and maybe committing yourself not to be critical and throw rocks at them anymore? Let's take steps that we need to towards unity. Let's celebrate our oneness. Let's celebrate our otherness that we may in our generation, Lord willing, fulfill this prayer of Jesus, that the church here at Shaw and around the world may be brought to complete unity, and not just for our own sake, but so that the world may know Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, you've given us this prayer, and you've prayed this for us. And I would pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give us the strength to live this out. For the people that we're thinking of now, Lord Jesus, give us the strength to move towards them in love, in fellowship, with forgiveness, to be people of reconciliation. God, you know all of these things take real courage. They're not easy. I pray, Lord, for the situations represented in this room now. I pray for relationships that are, that are fractured, I pray for situations where differences are causing division. I pray by your Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, that you might bring healing, that you might bring peace, that you might bring a deep unity where we can still have our own identity, we can still have our own differences, but we want to look up and see the cross and be unified around you, Jesus. So show us the steps that you're prompting our hearts right now to take. Give us the strength of your Spirit to take those steps today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.